Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. This morning, Jesus is raising an important question, a question that all of us wrestle with in one way or another. How do we know what we know? Or to maybe put this another way, can we really know anything for sure, anything for certain? Probably all of us off the top of our heads can think of maybe a dozen examples of times in our lives when we've gotten burned because we thought we knew something for sure. And as time went on, we discovered that apparently we didn't know whatever we thought we knew as well as we thought we knew it. What we thought we knew for sure pans out not to be true after all. Now, this is certainly something that we deal with in our own lives, but it's actually an entire field within the realm of philosophy. Philosophers talk about a field of epistemology. That's the study of knowledge, how we know things. And it's an ancient field of philosophy. It goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks and even before. If you read the ancient uh, works of the Bible, the Bible is always asking this question, how do we know what we know? Through every generation, people have been trying to ask this question, and if you study this field, you realize there's kind of a a pendulum that swings back and forth. Uh, On one side, you have sort of a radical skepticism that really doesn't think that we can know much of anything, all the way back to sort of an arrogant kind of certainty where we feel like we know more than we actually do. And you'll see this change over time. 100 years ago, there was an explosion of new scientific learning. All the way from science in in the realm of the the natural sciences and the physical sciences, all the way over to uh, ancient history, where ancient history was approached from a kind of scientific perspective as new archaeological discoveries were bringing us back in touch with the civilizations that had died out hundreds and thousands of years ago. And it made people feel a hundred years ago that there was no end, no limit to the knowledge of humankind. Well, you fast forward and a lot of things have happened. That modernism gave rise to what we call postmodernism, where things began to be questioned. Truth was no longer something that was objective and fact-based. It became relative and subjective. My truth may be true for me. Your truth may be true for you. And even if our truths contradict, well, that doesn't really matter because it's still true for me. And what is true for you can be true for you, no problem. Well, even go on and We live in a day and age now where our generation is crying out for questions of what we really can know, things that we're absolutely certain. A generation, two generations, three generations ago are not so certain anymore. Again, a hundred years ago, you probably would have no problem knowing who you were, where you came from, what you would do when you grew up, you'd probably carry on whatever the family business was. Every role was determined. Who you were was entirely laid out before you. You had an innate sense of security and certainty. But today we live in an age where even 
people can't necessarily know their gender based on their bodies. And if that's true, how can we know anything about a man who lived 2,000 years ago? Again, our generation is so uncertain about everything. How can we know for certain that Jesus is who he says he is? Well, again, the questions that are swirling in our culture are different than the ones that were swirling in Jesus' age. But again, people still wanted to know, how do I know anything for sure when Jesus was alive? And so we come to a passage where the Pharisees and the Sadducees are asking to know for certain if Jesus is who he says he is. And again, we have to ask, how do we begin to answer that question? We live in an age that asks a lot of questions, but that does not have the tools to answer them. So what tools does Christianity offer to answer some of these difficult questions? Our big idea today is this. Seek Christ in the signs that He has, has provided. Seek Christ in the signs that He has provided. This passage is all about signs. Maybe you try to read the signs in your life and where they're leading you. Well, Jesus tells us how to accurately think about the signs that God has given us to tell us about what is true and what we may know for certain. So the first part of this passage, in verse 1, we are going to see the demand for a sign from heaven, a sign from heaven. Second, Jesus is going to redirect attention to the signs of the times, the signs of the times. And then third, in verse 4, Jesus is going to promise them nothing more, nothing less than the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. A sign from heaven, the signs of the times, and then third, the sign of Jonah. So let's start in the first verse, a sign from heaven in verse 1. Now, if you've been here as we study the Gospel of Matthew, we've been paying a lot of attention, especially in these last few passages, to the geography. Where Jesus is is extremely important for understanding the meaning of what he's saying and what he's doing. Now, back in chapter 15, the previous chapter, verse 21, we read, Jesus went away from there. He was leaving Israelite territory and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. That is, Jesus moved out of Israelite territory and went into Gentile territory in the far north. And then in verses 32 and following, when Jesus fed the 4,000, he remained in Gentile territory. He's still in Gentile territory. That's extremely important. But notice just the previous verse to our passage. So chapter 15, verse 39, the last verse in chapter 15. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Magadan. So Jesus was started up in the, in the, in the northwest, uh, I guess the northwest side, I'll kind of show here. Here's the, 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 sea, uh, um, the, the Mediterranean Sea, and he's gone over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and now he's getting in a boat, and he's coming over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and now he's re-entering for a brief moment of time into Israelite territory. That's very important. Jesus, having returned to Israelite territory, is immediately confronted again with the Israelite religious leaders. In verse 1, we read, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, this is nothing new that the religious leaders would come and ask Jesus a question to test him. If you remember back in chapter 15, verse 1, we read about how the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked him a question about why his disciples don't wash their hands, according to the tradition of the elders, uh, like everyone else did, like they were supposed to. 
But now it's not the Pharisees and the scribes, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now again, we have to understand something of the um, inter-Israelite political squabbles of the day. The Pharisees and the scribes were fairly aligned. Many of the scribes were Pharisees and many of the Pharisees were scribes. But when you think about the Sadducees, understand that's a very different group of people. There was much less overlap. And more than that, these two groups were diametrically opposed to one another. They were, they were absolute enemies with one another. You see their battles and their squabbles come up at many point in the Gospels as well as in the book of Acts. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along, but here they are coming as a united front to confront Jesus. Imagine if you read a headline that talked about how the congressional Republicans and Democrats joined as a united front, all of them together, to confront some particular issue. Now that happens, but it's extremely rare. It tells you that whatever enemy has arisen is such a great threat to the republic that all sides have to get together to confront it. We really haven't seen it since something like 9-11 when everybody got on the same page for a very brief moment in time. What's such a big deal here? It's Jesus. Whatever their personal squabbles and political wranglings among them, the bigger threat to both sides is Jesus. And so both of these letters, or leaders come together because of their greater enmity toward Jesus. And we read that they came and they tempted or tested him. Now, this is really important because the exact same verbs, the words for coming and testing or tempting, were the same description that we read back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, to talk about the coming of Satan to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. The exact same verbs both times. Satan came and tempted Jesus. And this word for tempt is to tempt or to test. And here it's used more of a, a testing. However, it's still very much a temptation, as we're going to talk about in just a moment. But what's happening here is that if you remember that story and the testing, the tempting of Jesus out in the wilderness, at the very end of it, Jesus said, Be gone, Satan. Satan could not return until an opportune time, until the time was right, until really the very end of Jesus' life. But Jesus will still be tested and tempted by what one commentator, Osborne, calls Satan's emissaries. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are together doing the bidding of Satan to attack Jesus. Now, there's a very important connection between these two stories. Satan had tempted Jesus to go outside his Father's will in three ways. First, in that story of the temptation, Jesus was tempted to eat bread that the Father had not given him. Satan said, well, you're, you're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? That was not something that God had given Jesus to do, to miraculously turn stones into bread. He would have been trusting upon his own fleshly ability and going rogue from what the, father, the mission that the Father had given to him. The next temptation was to put the Father to the test by jumping off the top of the tower of the temple. And Satan said, if you jump, well, then just see how Satan will hold up and, or how the angels will protect you from striking your feet against the ground. And Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The third test was that Satan offered Jesus an opportunity to sidestep the cross, the mission for which Jesus was sent to this earth, by bowing down to Satan. I will give you all the nations of the earth, Jesus, if you will just bow down to me, is what Satan said. Well, the test these Pharisees and the Sadducees are giving to Jesus is most like the second test of jumping off the top of the tower. 
they are asking Jesus to prove himself. They're putting him to the test to see whether he may or may not do something to prove that what he was saying was true. Specifically, they asked Jesus for a sign from heaven. Jesus had performed signs from the earth by their reckoning. He had healed various people of blindness, of uh, the inability to walk. They were lame. Uh, Some uh, were deaf and mute and healed those kinds of things. He had even raised someone from the dead. Uh, But what the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted was something dramatic, something that was from heaven, something that could not be argued against. Now, what might this be? Well, one commentator puts together a list. Remember the manna that God gave to His people in the wilderness. Now, this was called manna from heaven, bread from heaven. Later in the book of Joshua, we read about how Joshua asked the Lord for the sun and the moon to stand still in the heavens, and that was something that God did, and it was a great sign in the heavens. And the third thing was that God sent fire from heaven in response to Elijah's prayer on Mount Carmel and his dramatic confrontation showdown with the priests of Baal. Well, this is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees want. But the real question is not what they are asking, but why they are asking it. And what we're going to see and what Jesus is going to expose is they are not asking for a test of verification. They are asking for a test of falsification. It's not that these are people who want to believe, and they're saying, Jesus, help us out. We just haven't seen enough. If you just give us one little sign, we're ready to believe. We believe, but help our unbelief. Fill this up. Help us to take that final step by knowing that this is true. They're not like Gideon asking the Lord to set out a fleece and to see whether the fleece would be dry in the morning and the ground covered with dew, or whether the fleece would be dewy in the morning and the ground completely dry. That was what Gideon asked for verification. This is rather a test of falsification. They are not asking Jesus for evidence to believe. They are trying to ask Jesus to do something that they don't think he will do so that they can use that as ammunition to attack him. They're gathering evidence that they are wanting to use against him by the fact that they don't believe he is going to do this kind of a sign from heaven. Now, I am someone who enjoys evidence in legal dramas. I like watching legal dramas. I I really enjoy uh, the whole thing where there's a mystery and attorneys on both sides, the prosecuting attorneys and the defense attorneys are trying to gather evidence, witnesses and physical evidence, whether they're trying to marshal in order to build a case. And I love seeing that dramatic courtroom scene. I'm told real courtroom trials do not look anything this dramatic or exciting, where each piece of evidence is scrutinized and where people are bringing up other evidence to try to argue against the other evidence and bringing in witnesses who are examined and then cross-examined. And sometimes rebuttal witnesses are called to try to impeach the testimony of the other people who came before. That's such a dramatic kind of a thing. But one of the ongoing realities, at least for American courtroom trials, is the way that the game is played is by a mutual understanding that the accused person is innocent until proven guilty. It isn't that the person has to find evidence to prove their innocence. No, no, the prosecuting attorneys actually have to gather together the kind of evidence to remove all reasonable doubt, beyond reasonable doubt, that the person is actually guilty of the crime of which he or she has been accused. And everything plays off of that. The defense attorneys only have to raise reasonable doubt, whereas the prosecuting attorneys are really the ones that have the burden of proof to prove that this person is indeed guilty. 
Now, the way this particular drama is happening, the evidence that the Pharisees and Sadducees are asking is not where they think that the burden of proof is on them to show that Jesus is lying. They actually believe that Jesus cannot be true, that he must be guilty, that he is guilty until he proves himself innocent, until he marshals some evidence to exonerate that the claims that he is making about himself are really true. What we have here is not an impartial group of people who are seeking the truth, who are seeking knowledge. They want to know that Jesus really is who he says he is because they're looking for that. No, no, these are what you see all the time in the courtroom dramas. These are unscrupulous prosecutors who are trying to make a case stick no matter what. The Pharisees and the Sadducees then are raising this test just like Satan did because they are looking for ammunition to undercut Jesus, to disprove any need or necessity to believe in him. But then the question you might ask is, well, does this mean that we should just be gullible and believe whatever? Should we ask no questions of Jesus? Should we never ask him to give us some kind of a sign to believe in what he has said? Well, that's not quite true either. The Pharisees were wrong to ask for a sign from heaven, Pharisees and Sadducees, to ask for a sign from heaven to prove that what he said was true. But Jesus then turns the tables and says that, understand, you have already seen a number of signs. The fact that you haven't seen them is something that I want to direct your attention to now. And this brings us to the second section, the signs of the times in verses 2 and 3. We read, Jesus said, he answered them, or he answered them, and Jesus says this, when it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now, if we continue to compare this passage to the, to the passage where Jesus was tempted by Satan, there's a really important difference in what Jesus does here. When Jesus interacted with Satan, Jesus never mentioned one word to enter into any kind of dialogue or debate with Satan whatsoever. The point is worthless. The point is moot, mute, moot, not mute. When you are tempted by Satan, the worst thing you can possibly do is to start dialoguing with him, to start reasoning with him and rationalizing with him. Why? Because anything you might enter into him is something that he is only going to try to turn against you. Even Jesus didn't try to show Satan where he went wrong. Jesus simply quotes Scripture. It is written and basically implies by that, I'm not going to do what you ask me to do. The Scriptures tell me that I cannot, and that's the end of the discussion. But here Jesus does something very different. He actually shows, and this is an act of great mercy and kindness of Jesus. He shows the Pharisees and the Sadducees where they have gone wrong. He says, you're asking for a sign. I'm not going to give you what you're asking of me, but I'm not going to leave you in the dark. I'm going to show that, in fact, you have missed the signs that I've been giving you. And he says, in terms of the weather, you know how to interpret the signs of the times. Um, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. You know this. You won't go on the sea or you will go on the sea based off of whether this is true, based off of what the signs you can see. But you're missing the signs of the times that are happening spiritually. Now, when Jesus talks about the times, 
It's important to understand that in Greek there are kind of two ideas of time, two words that capture different ideas of time. We use the same word for time, but it's important to understand there are different words in Greek for time. Uh, One word for time is chronos. We get our word chronology from this, and it refers to the sequential chronological passing of the time. It's something that is mathematically calculated. One thing leads to another. But there is another kind of time that's called kairos. And this is not so much the chronology, although these are always related, but this refers to the significance or the season of the times. So, for example, we're, we're kind of getting into fall time of year, fall season. School has started. Football games have been played. The leaves, if you look at certain trees, are are starting to change. This is a time that pretty soon will give birth to apple cider and pumpkin spice and harvesting going on. Different fields, if you drive by them, have now been harvested. Now, none of these are mathematically calculated, although it's certainly related to the time. You don't pick an exact date on which these things may or may not start. These are seasonal. A lot of them has to do with weathers. It's been a a cooler fall that affects different kinds of things, a cooler summer that affects the way that we perceive the early onset of fall when really the the time has passed in just the same way as the rest of the year. Jesus is talking about not the chronological passing of time mathematically. He's talking about the season. You're missing what season we're in. Now, what does he mean? What season are we in? What are these times, the signs that show us what season we're in? One commentator, Morris, I think probably has it right when he says that in the Old Testament, most likely this is a reference to the Lord's visitation of His people. The Lord visits His people, especially in the Old Testament. And how? Why? Well, when the Lord visits His people, obviously the Lord is always everywhere, but when the Lord visits His people, it means a special coming of the Lord for either blessing or for judgment. The Lord visits His people. And indeed, in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, Jesus will talk explicitly about the visitation. He's weeping over Jerusalem. This is later in the story uh, when Jesus uh, triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, and He weeps over Jerusalem. Why? He says to Jerusalem, because you did not know the day of your visitation. The Lord had arrived, and it could have been blessing for you. Because he came and you did not know the day of your visitation, this will be for you for a curse. And indeed, 40 years later, that entire city would be destroyed, raised to the ground by the coming of the Romans who would destroy that city and the people who disbelieved in Jesus much more than the temporal judgment of the Romans. The people who rejected Jesus who came to them would be eternally lost, eternally sent to hell. But what kind of visitation is Jesus talking about, or specifically, what kinds of signs should they see to recognize that this is indeed the Lord, not only true man, but true God who is in their midst? Well, there's a very important passage we've already studied in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist sent his disciples to talk to Jesus, and he was exactly asking the same kind of a question. He said to, they said to Jesus, on behalf of John, because John was still alive but imprisoned, and they said, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah? Or is there another? Now notice, they weren't trying to prove him wrong. They weren't asking for a great sign from heaven. They were simply asking, did we get this wrong? Are you the one who is to, was to come? Or is there another? Are you Messiah? Or should we wait for another? 
And Jesus responds by pointing to the signs. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. Blind receive sight, lame walk, lepers cleansed, deaf hear, the dead are raised up to life, the poor have good news preached to them. What Jesus was saying is these things are signs. But they are signs of a kind that are only that only work for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear them. If your ears refuse to listen, you won't hear what these signs are telling you. If your eyes are shut to what is happening, then you will not see what Jesus is doing in front of your face. The issue is not a lack of data. The issue is not a lack of signs. The issue is a willful lack of desire to believe what those signs suggest about the season that is here. If you look and you see crops harvested, and you see people selling pumpkin spice kinds of things, you know fall is here. Those are signs that tell you what time it is. Even if you've been in a coma, if you wake up and see that, you know what, kind of, what time of year you are in. Jesus is saying, open your eyes and see what I have done. They tell you this is the day of the Lord's visitation. The Pharisees and Sadducees ask for a sign from heaven because they don't actually want the signs that Jesus has already given them to be true. But if that's the case, how then should they proceed? Does Jesus just leave them in the dark? Or will he break down and graciously give them an extraordinary sign from heaven as they are asking for? Well, in fact, Jesus is going to do both. He will give them an extraordinary sign from heaven, but it will be of such a way that even then they will be too blind to see it, too deaf to hear what it says. And this brings us to the third section, the sign of Jonah in verse 4. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Once again, Jesus is pointing out the problem is not a lack of data. The problem is that you are evil and an adulterous generation. This is a moral problem, not an intellectual, not an epistemological problem. This isn't a problem for philosophy to tell you how to answer this question. It's that you don't want the answer. But then second, Jesus says that he will not give them a sign. He says, but no sign will be given to it except for one, except the sign of Jonah. Now, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, again, Jesus has already told us earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 12, verses 38 through 39, where Jesus compared his death and burial in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights to the swallowing of Jonah into the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Just as Jonah arose from the fish back to life, Jesus will arise from death. Now, Jonah did not actually die. He was simply spat out by the fish. God kept him alive in the fish, and the fish spat him out, and he continued to live. Jesus will fulfill that sign by taking it one step further. Jesus will be crucified and he will die and he will be buried for three days. And after that, he will rise from the dead. This will be an extraordinary sign from heaven. A dead man will rise from death to conquer death, for death never to touch him again. Even the people that Jesus raises from the dead in the Gospels eventually must die again. Lazarus must die again. Jesus will never die again. But there's one more sign that comes, and that's at the very end of this verse. So he left them and departed. When the Lord departs from his people, as one commentator Linsky points out, 
This is a sign in itself. This reminds us of the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 10 verses, or 10 through 11. In Ezekiel chapter 10 through 11, there is this dramatic story of the glory of the Lord who is inhabiting the, the Shekinah indwelling presence of the Lord that gathers up from the temple of the Lord and starts making its way step by step out of the temple of the Lord and remains on the threshold of the temple of the Lord for a while and then goes out of Jerusalem and then goes up on the mountain and then goes and departs from His people. And after that, after God's presence has left His people, judgment comes upon them. So Jesus performs one more sign here. He left them and departed them as a sign that judgment is coming. Now what happens after this is that Jesus doesn't just walk away a few steps. In the very verse, next verse, in, in verse 5, if you want to peek ahead, we read, when the disciples reach the other side. Again, they have gone back from Magadan on the one side of the Sea of Galilee, and now they are going back to the other side, where they are going back into Gentile territory. And Jesus is going to remain in Gentile territory until Matthew chapter 21, when he begins to make his way down to Jerusalem to embrace the cross. What we are seeing here also is a foreshadowing of the Christian mission among the Gentiles. That very often as you read the book of Acts, you are going to see that Jesus sends his apostles first to the Jews and they preach the gospel to the Jews. But as the Jews consistently, continually reject the gospel, then after that they shake their dust off their feet and go to the Gentiles. That's even all the way to the very end of the book of Acts. That's where the book of Acts ends. And when Paul is in Rome and Paul preaches to the Jews in Rome and they reject Jesus. And so Paul begins to preach to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are rejoicing. We are seeing Jesus live out that mission in advance as a preview of what's going to happen in the spreading out of the church. Now, that won't always be the case. One day the Jews will convert to Christ in droves. But we're seeing here the interplay of that, foreshadowed in the ministry of Jesus. Well, how then should we apply this passage? What Jesus is urging, calling us to do, is to interpret the signs of the times. Again, we started this sermon by asking this question, how do we know what we know? How can we know anything for sure? And again, we live in a culture that is constantly asking this for question. Even the most basic things of life are being questioned. But our society just doesn't have tools, doesn't have the way of answering these questions. The Bible gives us these answers, but maybe not in the way that the world would respect. Again, the world asks for a sign from heaven. Jesus has given a sign from heaven in rising from the dead. The world still won't want it. So we have to set what the world wants aside and look at what the Bible gives to us. The Bible says that we are living in the last days, not the very last days, but the Bible says that in these last days, God is speaking to us in a very specific way through His Son, that is, by His Word and through His Spirit. We read this in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. How did you know something in the past? Well, God spoke to the prophets in many ways at many times in the Old Testament. But in these last days, we are in the last days. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
God used to speak to his people through signs. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees are asking for here, among other ways. But now he has spoken to us by his son. How does he speak through his son? Well, we have the Gospels, where we hear the exact words of Jesus during his lifetime. But then we have the Acts of the Apostles, where the, the Spirit of Jesus continues to work in and through his church as he sends the apostles to preach Jesus throughout all the nations of the earth, to begin that mission at least. And then as we read the rest of the letters that tell us as the apostles continue to reflect and write and to unfold the mystery of the gospel, Jesus is still speaking through his word that is written and left for us by his Holy Spirit. And because of this, because the Spirit still speaks through the word of God and the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, The Word has a self-attesting authority. How do you know that what God's Word is true? Do you need some sign to verify it? Well, signs have been given, but the Holy Spirit is the one who verifies the truth for this. We can have certainty as we read God's Word, as God's Holy Spirit bears witness that what we are reading is true. That won't satisfy an unscrupulous prosecutor. But God gives that as a gift for the confidence and the certainty and the joy of his people. Well, so what should we discern from the signs of the times? What can we know now for certain? Well, look around. In the season, in the kairos that we live, we see the gospel spreading throughout the world while at the same time, Christians throughout the world are persecuted and put to death. This has always been the case. It is still true today. The persecution, the bloody persecution against God's people is at a height that is untold, unprecedented in the history of the world. There are more Christians who are living in more places where the gospel is fiercely, violently opposed. And because of that, more Christians are shedding their blood as martyrs for the sake of Christ. How do we understand these signs? What this tells us is two things. Number one, Jesus is still on his throne. If this were a false gospel, God's people would not continue to give their lives to it. They would not at the beginning, those who had seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and they would not today as the Holy Spirit gives them confidence to go to their deaths. Jesus is on His throne. The gospel is continuing even as the world and the devil rages against it in all places. As we look at these signs, we have to understand The signs are clear. Jesus is risen from the dead. The greatest sign we have is the emptiness of the tomb. Jesus is not in his tomb. He is risen. And we see King Jesus reigning on his throne and the nations raging against him, just as the Bible has foretold. The world feigns ignorance, or feigns interest, I should say, pretends to be interested, demands signs. If you would just show us some sign to prove that this is true, we believe while at the same time falling into the trap of the Pharisees and Sadducees, reviling and rejecting Jesus, dismissing and deriding Him. As in Jesus' day, these demands are not honest requests for verification. These are rather demands for the sake of falsification. See, I told you you couldn't prove that this is true. But again, once again, we have to, re- we have to rely on what we have. The sign of Jesus' empty tomb. We have the sign of the gospel spreading throughout the whole world. We have the word of God given to us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as the Holy Spirit bears witness in our hearts that what Jesus has said is true and that if we believe on him, that the Holy Spirit teaches us 
to know in our hearts that God is our Father, to cry, Abba, Father. The question then is, what about you? We can obfuscate and we can kind of redirect and kind of deflect these questions from reaching us by saying, well, I just need more evidence. But the question is coming back to the same struggle that is faced between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people as they interacted with Jesus. The question is, when you are confronted with Jesus, with His Word speaking to you and with the signs that He has given to you, will you believe? If you don't believe in Him, you're simply going to be swept away in the spirit of this age. We have our spirit of the age, especially given to the sexual revolution, which promises falsely happiness and satisfaction and joy. In Jesus' day, it was a kind of religious certainty. We know that we will save if we keep the right rituals. What Jesus is saying is that you today are facing the same choice here. What about you? Will you believe what He has given to you in His Word and in the signs that He has given through His resurrection and the empty tomb and the Word of God? Or will you be carried away with whatever the spirit of the age is today and then whatever the spirit of the age will be tomorrow when this spirit of the age collapses? Because it will, it must at some point in time. Will you be tossed about on the winds and waves of human ideas that continue to seek and continue to fail to find truth and satisfaction apart from God? Or will you recognize that the time is short? We are in the last days. Jesus is coming again soon. Will you turn away from your sins and look to Jesus in faith for your salvation? Will you repent, relinquish, turn from your own ideas, this culture's demands? in order to give due attention to what Jesus has already given. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son and His Word, and through the sacraments that we are about to enjoy, is the Holy Spirit He sends to us from heaven to bear witness in and among us that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What about you? Is this your hope? Is this your confession? This morning, on this Lord's Day, Would you turn to Jesus, look to the sign of Jonah, Jesus risen from the dead? Because if you were hearing this, this is the day of the Lord's visitation. The Spirit is here as we read and study God's Word. The day of the Lord's visitation is here. Will you know it? Will you heed it? Or will you turn away from the Lord as He departs from you? Turn to the Lord Jesus this morning and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us Christ. I pray that if there are any in this room who do not yet know Jesus, you would turn them out of a fear for their safety, out of a recognition of their sin, to Jesus Christ for the mercy that he extends to them through his crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection, to look to him in faith for the forgiveness of sins and for life everlasting. We pray this In Christ's name, amen.